Her Company is a growing platform for women to discuss how they create, build, and live. I am In Her Company's founder and creator. I am also a published author, consultant to multi-passionate women, and socialpreneur. My name is Chris Vaughn. Welcome. we celebrate the 100th anniversary of women using the power of their voice and action to change the world. This August marks 100 years since the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote. However, this did not include all women. It would take another 28 to 55 years for women of color to reap the benefits of the movement they too had supported and fought for. Joining me for this special podcast is Cami Watkins, candidate for District 3 City Council in Omaha, Nebraska. Cami has a long history of working to promote policies for the benefit of her community and beyond. Her work earned her national attention as one of Glamour Magazine's 70 female eco-achievers, alongside other environmental leaders such as Lisa Jackson, Obama's EPA director. Cami credits her mother with inspiring her to be on the front lines of issues such as sustainability, affordable housing, and racial equity, and doing the work to build a just society. Cami joins us for a discussion of what the 19th Amendment did and did not do for women of color, suffrage, and the women's movement from this perspective, and tangible ways women can move forward together today. Cami, welcome to In Her Company. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So why don't we start the conversation with what suffrage and maybe the women's movement look like through the lens of women of color at this time? Yeah. So, you know, suffrage and the women's movement in the 1850s, 60s, we really start to see various women that we've heard of throughout history, so Jonah True, Harriet Tubman, Frances Ellen Walker, Harper, all um, orators or writers speaking out about both abolitionist and kind of racial equity, as well as gender equity. These women were very much involved in the earlier beginnings of the suffragist movement, but also were very much involved in the abolitionist movement. And they found it inextricably linked together that racial equity and gender equity had to be done hand in hand. And oftentimes they were working alongside prominent women, white women, as well as highly supported by prominent black men like Frederick Douglass. So it's really interesting to see like how the evolution of this movement happened and where in the 1870s, women in South Carolina were extremely involved in the fight for the abolition of child labor or the pursuit of educational rights for women and anti-lynching in South Carolina in 1870, shortly after the end of slavery. So to think about these women weren't supposed to have access to education, but were writers and journalists and sharing all of this information. So it's, it's um, hard to think, but not unfathomable, how we are so left out of the conversation. Mm. And even, and I think also in that time around the 1860s is when we started seeing the large influx of Indian boarding schools. And 
one of the women that came through that was Susan Picot, who is was the first Native American woman doctor in from Omaha, the Omaha tribe in Nebraska. Like that history and to know that she went into medical school specifically to meet the needs of her community. And when we think about the Native culture, it's very um, matriarchal and women have strong aspects of leadership and it consistently have those aspects of leadership. Um, and they brought their ways and it's it, the way that uh, Europeans treated exactly. that they were less than, but really the way that they were working is what we're trying to get back to now in American society of women-centered women leadership, because we see how that impacts and broadens our, our perspective more than the kind of masculine-centered leadership that we've been subjected to. Most definitely, because for years there have been just not only studies, but reports to show that when you have both male and female um, leadership in an organization, it's not only better for the corporate culture, but the profits are for, far higher that the um, quality of solutions tend to be more inclusive for, you know, both. You know, it's not one or the other, mm-hmm. it's both of us. And I find it um, interesting also, but, you know, this is sort of like one of those preaching to the choir moments. There is so much of the history of women that is not told. And just like people of color, we have always been there. We have always mm-hmm. played an active role in our lives, regardless if we were not, you know, allowed, <laughs> yeah, allowed yeah. to or not. Um, so having a voice is by no means foreign to us. Yeah, I think especially if you look at history, it seems like the first black woman um, was probably Harriet Tubman, and then Rosa Parks is the next one. Like if yeah. you look the way yeah. that our stories are told, it's like yeah. there's just been two. It was no one else. And they popped up. Uh I I have, um, this is a different discussion, but I have a take on that because what they're saying is that these are anomalies. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's kind of sad in a way that we are still talking about first. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't necessarily take first to mean that it's a compliment to the person who's being deemed first. Mm-hmm. Um, my take on first is that, oh, so you finally gotten over yourself enough to admit that somebody else can do this. So <laughs> Yeah, it's that idea of like black exceptionalism, which we know yeah. plagued so much of our history um, that they really wanted to just point out, well, this person who somehow came about and was talking and we, we've seen them they are the only one because if they had allowed the thought that all of us held those same exceptionalisms and that same insight and that same brilliance, they could not continue to hold us down. They wouldn't right. have been able to continue to call Native and American savages. They wouldn't continue to call us only two thirds of or three fifths of a white yeah. man, you know, yeah. all of those things. Yeah. That is so true. That is so true. Um, Why don't we um, talk about what some of those efforts were? Because our actions um, predated even the suffrage movement. So, you know, what were we doing before this even became, you know, a movement? 
so I think most of that work was happening around reconstruction. Is, okay. and, and if we think about that period of reconstruction, that was about 1863 till uh, I'm forgetting the ending of that, which was just about the start of the Jim Crow era, which was the, the death of reconstruction. But in that time, black women, um, there was about by, I think they said 1890, 30 black women had graduated from college just 30 um, as uh, by report. So who knows how many more, exactly. but by what we could find reporting in this time, we were seeing that women actually could not gain citizenship unless you were married. So there was that work was happening. There was the work to, there were several women that were working along, particularly immigrants um, that were working for uh to just gain citizenship. And the only way you could do that as a woman um, in the United States was if you were widowed or if you were a spinster or single, because then otherwise there was no need for you to have your own U.S. citizenship because your citizenship was tied to your husband. Um, but you couldn't own property that gave men the right to rape and beat their women. Uh, so all of these things were happening. And we see people like um, Matilda Gage who was a Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who is a prominent Iroquois woman. And one of the folks who really stepped up during the suffrage movement and some working alongside Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, some of the Susan B. Anthony, of course, being the matriarch of, deemed the matriarch of the suffrage movement. But the work that she was doing was really influenced by this native woman because as I said before, Native culture, this was ingrained within them. So each of the, this movement really started. We were doing a lot of that, fighting for women and children and all people prior to the start of the suffrage movement. So with um, abolitionist movement, we still were also seeing sex trafficking was happening back then. So all of these things were happening even in the early 1800s through the early or late 19th century. And women, women of color in particular, were all a part of these movements. And then as we started to question that citizenship piece, once um, all individuals were quote unquote free, <laughs> um, <laughs> We really saw women engaging in, okay, now we have to go to the next level because Reconstruction was beautiful for those first couple of years with everyone getting the chance to vote, the 15th Amendment being moved in there, and we started seeing Black people in politics. Um, there was still that barrier for women while there were many women in South Carolina in particular, which interestingly enough, South Carolina seemed to be one of the most progressive it had one of the largest numbers of black um, legislative individuals um, in the country, but if you think in Port City, um, yeah. that in that time in history. So it's really important for us to remember when we think about, oh, well, this is the first person or first person. It's like the first person after Reconstruction. 
Uh, yeah, and, and that's a key difference because there were many gangs. There were people in positions of power, not only locally, but in the politics. There were mm-hmm. prosperous businesses and towns and um, just so anything um, that white people would have done at the time. There were also freed men because mm-hmm. you know, slaves came over with skills. And I think that's something that is um, also conveniently hidden. When a person thinks of slavery, they typically think of, oh, this is just hard labor. Um, this can be mindless work. Um, there is, they're only doing what they're told to do. And I'm like, no, we came over with cultivation skills. We came over with skills in, in the arts. We came over with building in different ways that mm-hmm. um, even that they don't do in America here to this day for us to be so um, developed. But, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, these were skilled, intelligent people. And there's still a tendency to think that, you know, because of the language barrier or because of the name slavery, that that was not so. Yeah. And well, I think we also miss the the resilience of these individuals. Because oh, in spite of all of the things, the beatings, the torture, the devaluing, they maintained shortly thereafter, like, I don't want to miss the point that women like Ida B. Wells and uh, Mary Church Terrell, who were part of the the suffragist movement across the country, they were but one person, their parents, their father, their mother, away from slavery. Um, And that the things that they did and what they were engaged in and the fight that they had in them still being so close to that terror, white terror in their direct families, but it didn't stop them. And so it's interesting as we think about the erasure of these women in the history of the suffrage movement and the right to vote, that um, they were still not deterred from the movement. They put the movement above their own personal kind of um, dismissals. So even when um, Susan B. Anthony and Katie, Elizabeth Katie Stanton decided to break ties with black suffragists and push them, sideline them from this work, the black women were still in black journals talking about suffrage. They were still pushing the message even from the outside. Um, and of course we know when in 1913, that big rally when Alice Paul was involved, she had an opportunity to welcome in because by this point there were interracial clubs and groups in the North in Chicago in particular, one that was started, um, some groups that were started by the, some of the women, Ida B. Wells and Mary Church, that they were part of, they were in these interracial groups that came to that march, but the black women were told you need to march in the back of the group because they didn't want to dismay the Southern um, anti-black. It's like, how do you walk in the back of your own movement? That right there is this right? is kind of crazy, but uh, <laughs> uh-huh. right. and then imagine, and so like these women were by this point like in their forties and fifties, so they had been doing the work for a long time, and you're gonna have some young person that just just showed up, 
<laughs> and they're in charge now, and they're telling you, you need to be in the back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like a, anyway. Um, so. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. The joys of sisterhood. But um, <laughs> So one of the things that I found interesting while um, – just across my research, uh, because I also write uh, fiction, um, strong female characters. And um, I ran across not only that, but in research for um, this particular subject, that there was Hada, what is it? Hada Nasani, mm-hmm. um, a, an Iroquois um, that like you said, matriarchal. Um, the women were equal. They were partners. Even the children were able to hold land. Um, they had full autonomy. They were the ones who chose, uh, selected who would be chief. And if there ever arose a vote of no confidence in that chief, they replaced him. Mm -hmm. Um, And everything was done for the good of the nation. Mm -hmm. And so what uh, what also a lot of people do not realize is that just like our Constitution and, you know, I have to wonder if this is no coincidence, because I find it interesting that our U.S. Constitution was based in some part on the five nations of Iroquois what they their constitution already had in place. Mm-hmm. And here we go again for the suffrage movement. Women look to the nation of Iroquois. And, you know, it could be a coincidence, but maybe it's not. So for um, for white women to separate from women of color to see something, what it could look like in the nation of Iroquois where that did not exist. Mm-hmm. It is, you gotta say, you know, that's, that's, that's definitely ironic. You know, yeah. so you took the principles and the base of it, but then you distorted it to meet another end. Well, and I think that that's all indicative of kind of part of the downfall of what we blame on women and womenhood and sisterhood is that, oh, well, there's not loyalty. But I really believe that the downfall comes from this desire to assimilate to masculine misogyny, misogynistic behaviors. Um, True sisterhood would not discount because we understand that for the movement to work, We need to be working from the broadest lens of inclusion. Um, There's a poet, and I can't remember the uh, exact, I think it was Frances Walker, who had said, like, if we are stepping on the feeblest and the weakest among us, it is our own soul that will pay the price or some variation of that. And it's so true. And I think that, again, is so indicative of feminine energy and of women in the way, and we know, like, there's, I don't know a lot about um, 
I haven't done tons of research on this, but there are definitely within African cultures, there were very matriarchal societies and that women were the lead. And so it's really interesting in these communities of color where the women are the lineage of power. And we saw that both in our native culture, we see it in African culture, uh, but it's been distorted. And it's because for a long, long time, and probably still today, women see assimilation to misogyny as our way to gain power, as opposed to bringing, kind of eliminating that or bringing the good parts of masculine energy into the power structures of females. And that's where our sisterhood kind of find strength. And when we think of those that are really leading today, the movements that are happening, those big movements, Black Lives Matter, started by Black women. The pride, the first pride parade was a riot, started by a Black trans woman. Me too, a Black queer woman. Like there are Black women at the forefront of the major movements that we're seeing today. And because they started it and um, we're seeing um, some ex- glimpses of white women trying to sideline those works, but um, we're still able, there's more support in saying, no, 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 not today, man. <laughs> like, we don't need to do this, but like, we can work to get together in this. And I think it's really understanding the of what happened in history because where we could imagine where we could be today if those black women from the suffrage movement weren't sidelined by alice paul or susan b anthony imagine where the movement would have been today if they oh wow light years ahead in fact we may not even be having this conversation and that's the whole point Mm -hmm. you know sisterhood is just that sisterhood and you know that's something that is uh part of our core values at in her company, mm-hmm. every woman is your sister, regardless of socioeconomic standing, regardless of ethnicity, nationality. We are all sisters. And had we been able to come together back then, we, here we are 100 years later talking about the same issue. Why? Mm-hmm. Because we see some sisters as other and that's definitely not the case. Um, also, by eclipsing or entirely omitting um, certain histories, which is inaccurate to itself because all history is human history. Correct. Okay. And so by omitting some of the histories, we do each other a great disservice. Um, yeah. I remember um, in African history reading that um, before... Women went out to war, too. But even in the nations where women did not, the husbands and the sons sought the blessing of their wives because they wanted their wives to be praying for them while they were on a battlefield. So it's Mm -hmm. like, give me your blessing before I go out and fight for you and, you know, my nation. Um, So, you know, there's a lot and that's that's rich. Mm -hmm. And And, we see a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we not nod to that here as well. Yeah, like what would happen if that was how we could have embraced each other, you know? Yeah, and that's could... that wisdom lost that yeah. if we had just helped continue, because even in the beginning of the full vote, once black men 
gain the vote, there are stories of the Black men going and conferring with their wives prior to voting. In some cases, when the Black men would go, women would go with their husbands to the voting booth and confer with them. So that it's all linked. And again, if we were just allowed, um, and not necessarily we didn't need to be allowed, like just welcomed in the space because we were part of it. It's not like we showed up after they were doing all this. And we're like, hey, we wanted to do this too. Like we were doing the work with them and then it was co-opted. And I, I think that that's just, that's what happens is because, and, and granted, the fear of that the movement may not be successful if we bring in the racial equity piece was real. Like that was real. And most certainly the movement would have taken longer. But I like one of my favorite mantras is if we don't have time to do it right the first time, when do we have time to go back and fix it? There you go. There like, you go. That's so a key point. And I think co-opt is um, a good word for it. So why don't, for our listeners, why don't we briefly recap what the 19th Amendment did and did not do for women of color specifically? So we do know that it did technically give the legal right to vote for women. But what it did not do was create a pathway for um, access to the vote. So it failed to prevent voting discrimination um, around racial equity. And so shortly after that happened, and granted, it wasn't until 1922 that they created a law that women could have citizenship outside of marriage. So legal right to vote happened, um, but women weren't granted full citizenship. (laughs) <laughs> until 1922. It's like, uh, how, do you, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, you can write to have, you can vote, but you're not a citizen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Unless you're married. And then if your husband's gone, well, good luck. Um, so there's, so yeah, like, and I don't want to discount the work of these women. Like there was definitely, this did, was a pathway and was a start, but it wasn't until the Voting Rights Act in the 60s, that we, uh, um, which then ended voting discrimination or attempted to end because we know that we're still seeing people find loopholes. Um, that is their job, especially when they're trying to maintain the status quo for their you own. You know, if we place the energy that is spent finding loopholes to assure there aren't any, then... Mm-hmm. Yeah, same energy, different use. <laughs> yeah, putting the intention into actual inclusion to help everybody and um, like for all of us. And I think like we saw, especially how this impacted when we think about the Equal Rights Amendment and that whole process. And that was the time. So this was our huge feminist movement was happening. And Shirley Chisholm uh, was up was running for president. And imagine if the kind of factors and the women in control had really thrown all their power behind Shirley Chisholm, as opposed to deciding, well, we, we've got all of these Southern women that are still anti-Black, so we want to, but they're Democrats. 
So let's placate them. Um, and I, so it's like time and time again. The moment she said, up, yes, they're Democrats. And mm-hmm. this is not a political conversation, but, you know, we're just saying. It's like we oftentimes sideline what we should do for what we can do right now. And I think we have to stop that. We have to stop setting these like, yes, we need the change. We need it now, but we need it for everyone. And if we actually focus more on what we should be doing um, versus the timeline of I want to, but we can get this done right now, we could have seen much greater strides today than we already than we have most definitely in fact um you know fear one the one of the acronyms for it is false evidence appearing real Mm. and so when we do not come together whatever the issue is then we give ourselves permission to make compromises and sacrifices Mm -hmm. that we should not and um you know, think of the generations and the impact that this would have made in other areas. You know, how different may the civil rights movement have been? There may not have been a need for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by denying women, like I said, you deny yourself. If women would have mm-hmm. came together, it would have been a whole lot um, harder to not only enact, but to enforce, you know, racist policies, legislation, um, even like things like se- segregation and whatnot, mm-hmm. certain things would in no way have been acceptable because you would have known you had people behind you that dis- that disapproved and were not going to tolerate that. Not white people, not black people, not other people of color. You would have had people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the impact. It has ripple effects elsewhere. And those are the things that when we make compromises, um, when we have the audacity to make sacrifices, whatever the reason, the reasoning is, um, Mm -hmm. then, yeah, we lose something ourselves. So hearing, hearing this, in your opinion, do you are factual? Do you believe that women of color have benefited more from their ongoing efforts or from suffrage and what we now know are accepted as the women's movement? Um, Benefited more than white women? (laughs) Um, No. Uh, Have we benefited more from our own work? You know what? Like, I want to say it, it, yes, and it depends. Like, they're in the moments when we were working alongside each other, the benefits for both were great. And in those moments where we were sidelined, they were not. So for that matter, we had to, like, we didn't have a choice. I think if, you ask the women of that time, if you ask Ida Wells, how would you, would you have rather had to take this all on alone or in collaboration? Most certainly the answer would have been in collaboration. And I think like that's the story, unfortunately, that people are saying is that, well, black women don't want to work with or native women don't want to work with or Latina women like Dolores Huerta 
all of these women in history, um, I believe it's that they all started trying to work with all women and various things that happened that sidelined them or co-opted them, which forced us to have to do the work for us. Like we've seen time and time again, the feminist movement was not for us. The suffrage movement and near the, the end of it was not for us uh, because the intersectionality of all of our identities were left out. People didn't understand what that was. And in the end, it showed their lack of understanding of our power um, as women of color. And I think that I was, as I was doing some research and reading, like in 1928 election, um, the, the political opponent that, who won credits his win to black women. Uh, and they weren't even really voting <laughs> that often in 1928. So in that was when I read that, that was so reminiscent of what we're hearing today. Um, that it's the black women or women of color, Latinx women and native women vote that are getting people into office and we're the ones that people are fighting for, but yet our movement, we had to do ourselves. So we benefited more from our own work, which makes sense. And there is a friend of mine sent me an article um, and I haven't yet read it, but it really, it, the points are, it, the headline was, um, there's no such thing as a white ally. And I was like, oh my, okay, I'm going to have to really take the time to read this, uh, where it talks really about that the problems of racism aren't, don't belong to people of color, but they belong to white people. And therefore they need to step up in this work, um, right. not just right. in allyship, but in ownership of the right. problem. Right. You know, um, I had a conversation not too long ago with someone on this um, topic, especially after the George, George um, Floyd, um, after he was killed. And um, she's a white woman and she's a friend. Um, and she asked me, when was um, racism going to end? And she wasn't, it, it was, you know, seeing this, you know, full, <laughs> like everyone else did. And so my response to her was when white people wanted to, because mm. people of color didn't cause racism no more than poor people cause poverty. Mm. So, you know, we didn't create it. It creates mm -hmm. issues for people of color, um, no doubt, but we didn't create this institution. So, when you get tired of seeing, seeing it, you will change it. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's a responsibility of us all. Um, another um, comment I would like to make piggybacking on what you just said, the fact that the candidate credited women of color or black women at the time um, with his win, even though they couldn't vote, and the fact that we continue to work um, in the movement that was co-opted and that the work that women of color did continue to benefit, it speaks volumes 
um, not only towards the quality of the work that we were doing and continued to do at the time, um, but to the impact that you cannot be part of something or that you can be forcibly excluded from from something, excuse me, and still Mm -hmm. your presence is felt. That's powerful. Mm -hmm. That is powerful. Yeah, it was absolutely, and I can't remember who said it, but when questioned, like, well, what are y'all going to do with the vote when women of color were questioned? They said, well, what can we do without it? And that was the response. And it's just like, we understand. And so putting, I think ego gets so caught up in these movements of it has to be me in my win and my victory and my timeline. As in my to, way, I'm the only yes. one that can do these things. Come join me. And yeah, yeah. as opposed to ours, our win. And even in spite of the fact that it, when they were saying we, we didn't include all of us, we were still working towards it because we knew that at the end of the day, because so, it would have been real easy to be like, well, forget y'all then. We're not supporting it. We're not going to be part of it good luck on your own. We're actually going to actively deter against it, which happens to movements often started by women of color. We don't want to be about it. So we're going to actively fight against it. We didn't do that because again, the greater good of the community was more important to us than our own ego of being seen as part of it. Yeah. I mean, especially when it came to the women who were immigrants, they were fighting for this because they saw the value in it. They in no Mm -hmm. way were going to benefit from that at all. Um, But the greater good, the higher value of sisterhood and what how that would impact them, that was definitely clear Um, Mm -hmm. if we could have such 2020 vision today. So um, today we have. Of course, many hashtags. <laughs> we have hashtags galore um, related to women's voices, women's empowerment. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your take on the um, the current status of sisterhood among women? You know, I think we have work to do. And we've come a long way. Um, Like true sisterhood exists and the power we hold through investing in it really means true solidarity, having the support for each other, even in disagreement and anger. Um, And I think that's the piece where we miss out, where we have work to do. Uh, Because it does not serve us or the sisterhood if we have to fight each other and misogyny. Um, Like it just doesn't work. So even if I don't like you, I still have to have love for you. And I think that's where we're coming as a sisterhood is like, we have to still understand that and recognize that um, we have to do it interculturally as well. I think within like within our racial identities, our like motherhood, or like working woman, um, or even certain industries, the tech industry, we talk about our um, service industry and care, healthcare. 
Like there's different, sisterhood looks different in each of those spaces, but um, where we struggle sometimes is internally, but oftentimes it's externally. The sisterhood that I have with other black women in my circle, whether they be um, great friends of mine or women that I just met is strong. And when I see like, there, I'm a part of an organization called the Women's Fund of Omaha, and they created what we call the Circles. Um, and it's a group of, they wanted a space for women that are progressive and um, wanting to gain networks, not just around um, work, but around community and activism to build power amongst women in the Midwest, in here in Omaha. <laughs> and the uh, beauty, the whole beauty of that organization is that there are 30 women that come in each class and you join and you're in for three years. So we end up with 90 women that are meeting together for um, at least a year, bringing all of these individual things. And each of us come with a different lens. And while we may have disagreements, we've learned how do we have it in a way that allows us to still respect and maintain each other. Um, and that it's more important for us to have this support. And the women that I've met through there, it's always so beautiful to see the encouragement and the support. And so it would be so easy for folks on our kind of Facebook group when someone's posting that their sister has gotten COVID and that they're just asking for prayers. It could be so easy for someone to be like, that's not what this is about. talking about work right right like and you know that we've seen that we've seen those things where someone's just sharing what they need and folks "Mm, uh, can we focus on you know and when we're talking about George Floyd's murder and we're talking about all of the things that are current um, the group started as a networking group to help women gain more power in the business world and within our community but it evolved into what it needed to be, which is a support system in all facets and areas of who we are. And that for me is sisterhood. See, that, that's awesome. In fact, um, I do believe that there was a big blowout of some type um, not too long ago or after George Floyd, where there were women of color in this um, huge Facebook group I believe it was for moms and when women of color um, started speaking about that they were shut down and so Mm -hmm. it caused splinters in the group um, which was crazy but um, I don't know where that stands to this day but yeah, it's like, okay, this is about motherhood, and we understand that the focus of groups is just that. You you do have to maintain focus, but when something that impacts all other mothers um, and the overall, the overwhelming response from um, the mothers of color in this group was, what are you doing to raise kids that won't kill mine? Mm-hmm. And that right there is a powerful concern. It shows that mm-hmm. we are still interconnected because these thoughts, these um, biases, the 
actions that led up to this man being killed, who was also a father. Mm-hmm. They don't just come up, you know, they're tolerated, they're accepted, they're fostered, you know, yeah. so we live in this larger world. Yeah. And like, and we can't keep assuming that because it doesn't directly impact me, I don't have to worry about it. Knowing our differences. And, you know, that's another thing that um, I think a lot of people don't realize it is possible to have unity mm-hmm. and to still disagree, to mm-hmm. still have room for, you know, individual preferences. It's not about creating a cookie cutter, co- ugh, cookie cutter. <laughs> Words are hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like we're not all supposed to be the same. No. We're working towards a goal together, but we don't have to have the same response. Um, and that also comes along with keeping the main thing, the main thing. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it needs to be pure and unadulterated if other people are to come in. And when I say unadulterated, I mean without other agendas. Yep. Um, so saying that, what are, <clears throat> excuse me, what are some tangible ways that um, we, and I'm talking about women, all women, mm-hmm. can move forward um, today without repeating some of these mistakes from the past? Yeah. So I think first, we have to recognize that conflict is a pathway to unity. Um, It's one of the things that I talk about in the work that I do, equity versus equality, and too often we've assumed that the antithesis to unity is conflict. But really unity is about inclusion and we can't get to full authentic unity if we can't work our way through conflict. Um, Because conflict happens when there's diversity and difference. And so if we can't, so like conflict um, in its best form is allowing us to really boil down to what is our best pathway forward. And the concept of failing forward is something we all need to become very familiar with. Um, We can look back at our history and learn from the missteps know what happened, really understand where we took pathways that were more detrimental than useful. But then also we have to understand that we're going to make mistakes again. And we have to be able to fail forward. We can't keep making these mistakes. Like you said, think of the things that they did back in the early 1900s in the late 19th century we're still dealing with today because we never addressed it then. We haven't failed forward. We fell backwards. And that's what people think, that mistakes are a detriment as opposed to a gift. So I think we need to start to really learn from where we've fallen down. We need to be intentional about intersectionality. Anybody doing this work, if they have not um, read any of Kimberly Crenshaw's um, white papers and information or listen to any of our TED Talks or speeches around intersectionality and how that impacts our movements, then you, that's step one. We need to understand that because there are very few battles that we as women are fighting that only impact one of our identities. 
Like they are all linked, race, ability, age, gender, sexual orientation. And so if we are doing this work, we have to understand how it's linked, but then take the steps to really use the broadest definition of equality and equity when doing the work. Um, Yeah, you know, that's one of the um, things because by nature, humans do not like conflict. Some of us don't don't shy away when we run to it and, you know, believe in facing it head on, you know, which is great. But overall, uh, people do not like conflict, but conflict by nature of itself is opportunities for growth. Mm -hmm. It presents opportunities for yeah, for your own growth and whatnot. So, you know, failing forward, wow. And I also think that if we cared more about human rights, mm-hmm. human rights, <laughs> because we are all human, mm-hmm. um, then we, the intersectionality of things that some of these other, what we call groups, would not be so. Not yeah. that they wouldn't exist. I want to be clear about this. Not that they wouldn't exist, but the things that they would have to go through. The other To say I exist mm-hmm. to the extent that their rights are classified as other rights. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I want to be, make sure I said that plainly because if you care for human rights, just like what we've done with men versus women, mm-hmm. <laughs> men being given the right to vote and women, you know, still considered property and not citizens, just like um, the civil rights movement, you know, well, our rights, like human rights, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, that's what we are is brothers and sisters. And we're all harmed when we don't have that equity or equality. Mm-hmm. Right, because that's that's the baseline. It's not the exception. That's Correct. the baseline. Um, so what's next on the agenda for you, Dare I Ask? And as I mentioned, you're running for city council. So um, if you have any final words of wisdom regarding this topic, and then please share with us what's next on the agenda for you. Yeah, so um, really my last probably word of wisdom for this is don't let a timeline stop you from bringing everybody else along. Um, Because back to what I said before, if we don't have time to do it right the first time, when do we have time to go back and loop all of us in later? Uh, But so in my journey, um, so the work that I do professionally is around equity, diversity, and inclusion. And we are really moving forward around systems change work. I think we now need to start to really address and think about the root of our problems, because so much of the social change work that we're doing right now, which is important and valuable, is um, people. We're helping symptoms of the problem, and we have not yet addressed the illness. So that's the work that I'm shifting towards. And in doing that, it led me to running for office. I realized that um, my calling and the pathway forward was I needed to be running for city council. So we launch officially and announce um, on September 2nd. Uh, so that's when the website goes live, social media goes live, and we have our first uh, official campaign launch event. 
It'll be a virtual hybrid event, um, September 26th. So you can check out our website, um, CAMI, the number four council, uh, C-A-M-M-Y is the, uh, uh, .com is that. So you can follow us there and support and volunteer. Um, my background in community um, engagement and organizing, I could not run a campaign if I was not also supporting the community in tangible ways. So our volunteers will be doing volunteer projects in the community throughout the campaign. That's awesome. You know, well, we wish you definitely, we wish you the best of luck with your campaign. I'm sure that regardless of the outcome, you will continue to make your voice heard and to, you know, build your communities, our communities as glamour so-called attention to. I want to thank you. Thank you for sharing your insight, your wisdom, for being here for this discussion today. I also want to thank our listeners and now viewers um, because we have started recording the In Her Company podcast in both audio and video. So thank you for continuing to support us, for continuing to tune in and share this podcast with um, other women that you know. We are recording our first series called Wielding Your Voice. Um, That series will interview different women. We will focus on the areas of passion, purpose, pain, and responsibility when you wield your voice um, because we should be wielding our voice against issues, not against each other. Also on September 17th, I'd like to invite you into our second panel of the year. It's entitled Womanhood, Our Deeper History. So hope to see you at both those events. Hope that you will continue to tune in. And once again, my name is Chris Vaughn. This is In Her Company.